The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. Now, on today's episode, we've got on a special guest who is a friend of mine. This is Alex Feinberg. He is a former Google employee, former professional athlete, and all-around good dude and fitness bro. He's also a very good cook as well. Welcome to the show, Alex. How are you doing? Thanks, Zuby. Awesome to jam with you here. Awesome, man. I've just done a very brief intro right there, Alex, but for people who aren't familiar with you, tell them a little bit about yourself. All right. Well, buckle up. This will take about 180 seconds, but I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area before it went crazy. Um, it, actually, when I grew up, they, they passed Proposition 187, which was banning um, illegal immigrants from state services. And even as I was a senior in high school um, in California, they actually banned gay marriage back in 2004. Uh, in any case, you know, growing up, I wanted to be a major league baseball player, worked very hard in high school to, to do so, ended up receiving a scholarship offer from Vanderbilt University, as well as some other schools, Stanford, but, you know, not quite to the extent of Vanderbilt. I thought it would be an amazing experience to go play SEC baseball, get to see a different part of the country. And so I packed my bags, moved a couple thousand miles and posted up in Nashville for a few years. It was a truly illuminating experience for me because growing up predominantly agnostic, atheist, um, I hadn't been exposed to people who were, you know, traditional Christians, traditional conservatives, and I thought they were kind of dumb, honestly, my first couple of years um, playing college baseball. But it didn't really start to click for me until, you know, maybe year three, year four, when these people who had backwards mindsets, in my view at the time, um, were able to perform better under pressure. I later rationalized that as, to, you know, belief in a higher being actually cuts through anxiety and neuroticism, um, very key point that we've seen over the last couple of years. Um, and allows you to succeed on your own. When I got done at Vanderbilt, I got drafted by the Colorado Rockies, played a couple years in their farm system, and the writing was on the wall. It wasn't likely to make it uh, to the major leagues. And so I ended up taking a job with a supporter of the Vanderbilt baseball team who actually ran a hedge fund in Hong Kong. Um, about $100 million of his own money was in the fund, and um, he was a conspiracy theorist. But this was back in 2010, 2011, where you know, we hadn't quite seen COVID. We hadn't seen what's what we've seen over the last several years. And so back then he was telling me that the Federal Reserve is a private corporation, instructing me to read The Creature from Jekyll Island, uh, even read the Federal Reserve Act itself. And uh, I have an open mind. And I thought this guy's got $100 million. I don't. I'd like to have that at some point. I should at the very least listen to him. 
And so I looked at all what I thought were the kooky videos, kooky, you know, websites that he was sending me. And I at least did my own investigatory research. And I came to believe at the very least that the Federal Reserve was a uh, private corporation that was you know, created and controlled by the banking sector to benefit them at the expense of everybody else. Uh, I also came to believe the mainstream media was created to propagandize everyone else. And um, I took this information and I thought it made sense to actually bet on tech. Reason being, we thought back in 2010, 2011, interest rates were going to stay low forever, which basically a decade is forever. And I thought the tech sector was going to do well in that environment because cheap cost of capital will subsidize the, um, you know, what startups need to function and it's going to multiply their valuations. And so I was just looking for an easy way to make more money without working that much. And uh, I ended up um, you know, figuring out a way to elevator pitch my way into Google with some of the shortcuts that I learned as a professional athlete, basically understanding that most people are heuristic based thinkers and, and they'll uh, assess you based on your superficial attributes, like how you speak and how you look in a suit. And I played that to my advantage, talked my way into Google, spent six years there in sales, corporate strategy, product partnerships um, before getting a uh, getting into the crypto space where I spent three years as a director of business development at a local crypto exchange. Um, during which that time, I realized that in crypto, if I wanted to continue to be employable in that space, I needed to have a growing Twitter presence. I knew I needed to have 10,000 followers when I had zero. And so I started creating content, but I realized that people actually found what I was doing on the fitness and cooking side a lot more interesting because this was back a few years ago. I wasn't counting calories. I was never going hungry, eating three to 4,000 calories a day and just shredded, you know, three, 4% body fat hydrostatically or doing calipers, um, six pack year round eating as you've tasted yourself, delicious food, every meal of every day without weighing, measuring everything, doing it purely intuitively. And so during my uh, three years in crypto, I actually found how to commercialize this offering and share with others how my diet works, how my recipes work, how my training works. I'm not at the gym all day. You know, we train together. Yeah. Um, and really just a sustainable approach to fitness and in life, because what a lot of people realize is when you get in better shape, a lot of doors open. People give you the benefit of the doubt. Uh, you might get that job offer that you didn't get before without knowing why. Well, being good looking, being confident, being jacksonated um, <laughs> gives you, you know, puts you over the edge. And so very much my entire career, I benefited from being in good shape. And I want to mm -hmm. be able to share that benefit, uh, share that unfair advantage with uh, with anybody who wants to work for the privilege of being jacked and tan and articulate. <laughs> That's awesome, man. There's there's so much there. There's so many directions we can go in. Tell me a little bit more about your time in professional sports. Tell me a little bit more about the story. And there's some things that you mentioned you learned from it. Tell me yeah. how it affected you even now. Yeah. So, you know, growing up, um, I was always really interested in psychology. And I had the false belief that logical thinking was always the solution to my problems. Um, I've taken Myers-Briggs. I'm an ENTJ. I'm guessing you're probably an ENTJ as well. Yeah. <laughs> you know, a lot of the Ed Lattimore ENTJ, yeah, yeah. Like a lot of the, a lot of the people on self-improvement Twitter are ENTJ because ENTJs mm -hmm. are essentially like, do you think logically and are you able to communicate with people? And so I didn't know this at the time. And I realized that modern psychologists kind of discard Myers-Briggs, but they are self-stated preferences. And, um, you know, the, the most dominant, um, Myers-Briggs representation in corporate executives is the ENTJ uh, type. But I noticed when I was 17, there's almost no professional baseball players who profile as ENTJ. And I thought, well, that sucks. That's weird. Hopefully, hopefully this doesn't matter for me. 
And what I came to realize um, playing in front of thousands of people every weekend at Vanderbilt University is that I did believe that more logical approach to sports um, probably limited my ability to perform under pressure. Uh, what I saw in baseball was that certain traits that might be incredibly disadvantageous to people in their normal course of life, like you know, extreme confidence, even arrogance, or unwillingness to take accountability, actually help people moderate the pressure and stress of playing in front of thousands of people with a lot of money at stake. And so at about 20, 19, 20, 21 years old, I started to realize uh, that rationality has, has its limits and started to also understand that you can't view people's traits as strictly good or bad. They're, they're always conditional, mm-hmm. right? Somebody might be crazy, might be uh, you know incredibly arrogant uh, or incredibly self-confident bordering on arrogant, might cost them a lot of money in a casino with a gambling habit, but put that person in a Bulls uniform and he's Michael Jordan, he's the best player ever. And he's willing to, to put the work in necessary to be the best player ever because he's that overconfident in, in himself. And so I think professional sports, you know, taught me more than, you know, overcoming adversity, which I had to do many times. It taught me the benefit of irrationality, limitations of logic, and it forced me to understand how most people think, which is not logically. You know, people think like sheep in, in many circumstances, and people are heuristic thinkers, right, where they're not going to do the, the analysis, even if they have the analytical tools that maybe they were fortunate enough to learn in school. They're not going to use them especially when they're, they're time bound, right? People use heuristic um, models to navigate their world. So, you know, maybe somebody who doesn't know Zuby, but sees a couple of tweets that he puts out criticizing something of the left will think, well, this guy's a white supremacist. And it's because of their, <laughs> it's the heuristic models that they've developed, obviously excluding skin yeah. and the heuristic models, but they think like, okay, so people who say this are this. People use very blunt categorization methods and mechanisms to understand the world around them. And that's frankly, uh, you know, one of the the reasons why polarization has been as bad as it has been over the last several years is because people are not willing to, you know, take the steps to just think logically and say, okay, is my heuristic model that I'm relying on correct? Because they don't even realize that they're using heuristic models. Yeah. Do you think that's something? I mean, it might be difficult for 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 you to say because you know we've both only been around for a couple of decades, but perhaps even during the course of our own lifetime, do you think that? that is something that has changed? Do you think that that's increased or do you think it's just that the technology that we have now and the ability to see so many people's opinions and interact with millions of people in a way which previously nobody could do, do you think that's just kind of exposing this stuff and perhaps um, you know, just making it more visible? Or do you think that it's altering people's heuristics and ways of navigating and even thinking? I think it's both. So I'll start with the counter and and saying, you know, the cult, what cultural changes have occurred. And I think anytime you're trying to understand cultural changes, it's also like inextricably important to understand the technology changes that have led to um, or exacerbated these cultural changes. And over the last 30, 40, 50 years, one thing that technology and especially the internet have done is they've increased the value of each second of our attention. So while we've faced a monetary debasement, monetary inflation, we've experienced time deflation. Mm -hmm. So your ability to get somebody to think about a problem that you're asking him about, and for 60 seconds in in the 60s, you may only have four seconds for that person to, to give appropriate thought now. 
Um, because think about it in the sixties, you're not even getting a fax machine. You're getting a hand delivered letter to somebody and they can read it and they have time mm-hmm. and you know, they go home to their wife and kids and, and they can think through these things where now you're getting rushed with uh, notifications everywhere. You're constantly being marketed to, you're constantly, uh, you know, shielding yourself from propaganda or not shielding yourself as in the case of most people. And so there's just much higher increased, um, urgency to pull your attention away. And so the same message that you could communicate in a letter in the 1960s, you have to communicate with a meme right now. Well, memes are really effective communication tools, but you also lose some fidelity in your message. And so you're unable to get people to think down, uh, sit down and think logically through um, and and explain like, okay, this is where I'm coming. This is where I'm going to. Um, As people become short on time, similar to how how they act if they're short on money, um, you know, they, they will skip steps, right? Mm-hmm. And in many cases, it will lead to worse outcomes. So that's the counter. The pro is, yes, obviously being exposed to everybody's uh, ideas will change the perception uh, that most people have. And one thing that I mentioned to our friend Zach Homel a couple of years ago when we, when we first met him, Zach's a powerlifting bro. Um, and, you know, what I was telling him is that when I was living in San Francisco, which I was at the time, when a homeless person or a, me- a clearly mentally ill person was saying something to you, you almost never took it seriously because they have all of the physical tells of being mentally ill. You know, mm-hmm. they're unshaven like both of us are. But in addition <laughs> to that, um, you know, they're community, you know, when someone's crazy, right? They're yeah, yeah. fidgety. Their mm-hmm. communication is, is erratic. And so over time, you learn to just ignore these people because you know that there's just nothing that they can add to a conversation that's going to help you. Unfortunately, with the internet, everybody types with the same font. Mm -hmm. And so it's very easy for mentally ill people to masquerade as healthy individuals because they're writing with the same font as you and I do on Twitter. And sometimes they're bots. And so I think that it's uh, it's a lot easier for crazy ideas to get uh, interjected into mainstream society because, number one, it's impossible to tell if it's a real person or a fake person. And number two, it's also very challenging to tell if it's a mentally ill person or a mentally healthy, healthy person. Now, obviously, there's tells on the profiles, you know, flags and all that stuff uh, with respect <laughs> to their mental illness. But, yeah. you know, a lot of people aren't, aren't in tune with that. And, and especially uh, people who haven't had the experience playing professional sports. They're just not used to being criticized by hundreds or thousands of people at once, which... I'm sure every time you put out a viral tweet, you get that. You got mm-hmm. to block a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. And it's probably easy for you right now because it's you've done it dozens of times. But it's not easy for most people. They, they can't. H- hundreds of thousands. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, those are so interesting, man. I mean, social media is such a, it's such a double-edged sword, maybe a triple-edged sword. It's, I think something that, it, I think it's really underestimated just how new it is and how powerful it is. I think that people forget it's only been, I mean, the first iPhone was invented, what, 2006? Yeah. 2006, the very first iPhone came out. And, you know, it took many more years before everyone had an iPhone or an Android phone in their pockets. So the combination of social media and smartphones has really only been around for about 15 or so years. And I think that we really underestimate just how recent a development this is and how much it's changed and is going to change humanity because fundamentally the way that we relate to each other and the way that we commute and the communicate and the amount of information we have access to and the type of people and the quantity of people we have access to never before in human history 
has such a thing existed? Not, not even slightly, not even slightly. I mean, to have the ability to just be in contact with billions of people. I mean, you you can reach, you can reach anybody. You can essentially send a text message to Mm -hmm. anybody on Twitter or anybody Mm -hmm. on Instagram, whether or not they see it and reply, who knows? But I mean, if someone just mentions you right now or sends you a DM, very high probability chance that you're going to see it. And it doesn't matter what level somebody is at, that can all happen. And there are so many advantages to it. And I think with what we do and our business and the way that we try to get information out to people and sell our products or advise people, coach people, run podcasts, whatever it is, it's very conducive to that. But for someone who's just in a sort of consumption mindset and is just scrolling through, just doing the endless scroll mindlessly on whatever platform it is and just taking in all of this information nonstop and not really thinking about it. Um, you know, it has a real impact on people individually and also collectively. And I think that people are starting to wake up to that a little bit more and starting to get a little bit more hip to what's going on with the algorithms and the way that they're being pushed in certain directions and so on. But I don't know, I feel like it's an atom bomb level invention and technology which we kind of appreciate and get, but we're still at a very early phase of the experiment. Not just that, it also changes the profile of our social leaders. And so during Mm. the 20th century and every century before then, we were led by people who had great people skills and great oratory skills, because that's what you had to do to get anything done at scale is you had to lead a group of a thousand people, 10,000 people, 50,000 people, um, or in the case of nation leaders, millions of people. Um, all the richest people in the world, if they weren't born into it, had those social skills. You know, Andrew Carnegie knew everybody's name in his organization. And this was written about in Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Right. So as much as you want to disparage robber barons, like they actually had really good social skills, most likely, or at least some of them did. Um, And so what, what we're seeing when you're changing the profile of the rich and prominent people in society from those who are very good socially to those who are very good with technology is there's a human element that, that becomes lost in that. And it's not that, um, that nobody is good socially. It's just, it's just not rewarded at the scale, uh, that being good with technology is. And so you, you know, you've had a lot of success off of Twitter, off of YouTube, off of social media platforms, but Jack Dorsey's, you know, been probably more successful, right. Depending on how you want to define it, but certainly monetarily more successful. And so a guy like Jack Dorsey, I don't even know if he has kids, but uh, don't think so. yeah, 50, 60 years ago, none of our leaders, it took so long to become in, uh, in a position of prominence socially that by the time you got there, you not only developed social skills, you had kids to look out for. And, and that changes what your focal points are and, and how, how much risk tolerance you have for changing society. Mm-hmm. But when the baton is passed from parents with good social skills to technologists who may or may not uh, be parents and may or may not have good social skills, uh, the risk appetite for social transformation is going to scale up dramatically. And you also have to understand that the prism through which they understand the world is binary, right? So it's it's no, uh, which is you know a little bit contradictory to their gender ideologies, but it's it's no. Um, uh, it's no wonder that a lot of these people in technology view individuals as interchangeable and they don't understand that there are differences uh, between individuals and even between groups of individuals um, because I think their brains are so programmed to see the world through code 
and to compress the differences that our natural world will show us into like, how does this map to, to a coding algorithm? Mm -hmm. And so I think that, you know, in addition to changing the profile of our consumers, it also changes the profile of our leadership, you know, this technology thing. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting point. And it's a strange juxtaposition because at the same time we have this like ancient old guard, especially in the political realm, you know, we've got people who are in their seventies, eighties, in some cases, 90 mm -hmm. <laughs> who, who are still at these upper echelons of the socio-political ladder. So there's this strange gap because I, I, I totally hear what you're saying, but then I'm also looking at the people who are running the USA or running these European sure. countries or whatever, and they're, they're ancient. They're way, be they're way past the age of typical retirement. And so there's right. a strange disconnect there. Well, I, I was thinking about this the other week and because, you know, you're not the only one who's, who's noticed this. A lot of people have. And it made me it made me believe that being politically connected is so powerful that it's like for every one unit uh, that being politically capable benefits you being politically connected benefits you by 50 X that. Mm. And so what that means is if you've been in politics for 30 or 40 years, even if your ability is one tenth of what it was when you were starting, because you're 10 times better politically connected or a hundred times better politically connected, you can still get that position of authority. And I was thinking like, why is this the case in this generation and not previous generations? And I was actually believing that this is one of the side effects of uh, our advancement in medicine and our expansion of life expectancy is because people are, have always been greedy. People have always wanted to hold on to power. But it's possible that we would have been medically limited um, several generations ago to where it's like there's just not that many people who are alive at 70 who can stand up and talk for 30 minutes. Not that, you know, our leaders necessarily <laughs> can. <laughs> but, but, you know, the, you can keep the charade up a little bit longer with medical yeah. advancements. Right. With, you know, yeah. the, the different pharmaceutical and, drugs and technological advancement. Right, right, right. All these people would either be in the grave or in a, in a nursing yeah. home. And maybe they, you know, maybe we would be better off if they were, but we wouldn't even have this, this discussion 60 years ago because, you know, by, mm -hmm. by necessity of the natural order of things, they would have been removed from leadership. What concerns you most about the way all this is going, this combination of society and culture and morality and technology? I mean... I, there's some things that give me hope, but there are also various things I'm concerned about. So is there something that kind of consistently plays in your mind or bothers you about the future or where you think your country or the world in general is heading with all this? There's no adults in the room. Mm. And, and that's a combination of capitalism, unfortunately. I'm a huge proponent of capitalism, but I also acknowledge... What, what do you um, mean by that? Well... If you want to get people to do things, which you do as a capitalist, you want them to buy things from you. It's easier to get people to buy things from you when you can tap into their emotional circuitry, right? Mm -hmm. Good salesmen aren't logical. Good, sales will tap, good salesmen will tap into people's emotions and get them essentially to act more like animals, right? Tap into their fear, tap into their greed, mm -hmm. bypass their logical limitations of, oh, well, I can't necessarily afford this now. This might not be best for my future. And good politicians can do the same thing. And with technology, we have analytics that allows people's innovation cycles to compress 
down to days or weeks for different, you know, as they test different messaging where in previous generations, it probably would have taken a year or two, or at least several months to learn what people can now learn in several weeks about how to create messaging that manipulates people at scale. Mm -hmm. And so what I think um, it's not just the, you know, quote unquote, progressive left or regressive left, depending on how you want to call them. You know, the capitalists are are responsible for this too, which is essentially um, stripping humans of humanity and turning them into animals that can be herded into buying the latest product or voting for the latest puppet uh, politician. And, and once you train these people to bypass their logical inclinations, it's not that easy to say, okay, guys, let's slow down and let's stop being, you know, emotional about this. And like, let's just start being calm and like rationally thinking through things because we could see over the last several years, how effective have rational arguments been? Certainly they are effective for some people. Sure. You got to catch a person in the right state of mind, uh, right time of year for them to even be open-minded uh, mm-hmm. enough to, to think through a counter argument to what they're certain is true at the moment. And I think when, when people are so uh, programmed to, to think and act animalistically, they act like a herd and there's no putting the brakes on things if it goes against the, uh, a false belief that they're certain is true. What was the thing that, what was the, what's the biggest lesson you learned over the past two and a half years after everything we've just lived through with the entire pandemic and pandemic response situation? What's the... What's the key? What's the biggest takeaway for you? There's a plan that's being marched through whether we want it or not. And and it's clear because you look at like build back better. Why did, why, why did more than one country call their uh, legislative or financial package build back better? Like there's nothing, you can call it anything you want. You can call it pure coincidence, Alex. Right, right, right. So anytime to me, Anytime you see common nomenclature to describe something that should have a little bit more diversity in nomenclature mm-hmm. and the diversity and inclusion movement is, is included in that, it suggests to me that it's coming from a centralized source. And so when, you know, at the start of COVID or, or perhaps even before COVID, you know, perhaps it would extend back to right around Trump's election, um, it seems that there's an agenda that's being pushed through. And when the facts don't fit the agenda, they ignore the facts, they selectively present the facts and whatever it is they wanted to push through is going to get pushed through anyway. So the Democrats couldn't get the the first rendition of build back better pushed through. Well, they just put some makeup on it, call it the inflation reduction act. (laughs) It's it's the same thing. It's just maybe 70% as bad or something. Uh Um, Oh, guess what? It solves the problem du jour. Uh-huh. And if you oppose it, then you pro- you obviously want the problem du jour to get worse. Of course. And, and so, you know, that jamming a square peg through a round hole that we're seeing um, with vaccine mandates you know, that have fortunately become, I think, less pronounced, even though Djokovic is not able to participate in the U.S. Open. Um, it's clear that it's like, you know, even even thinking last year when when there were vaccine mandates, and the data would change because the data is changing all the time. And it's like, okay, so um, if the goal was to protect us against like health or, or adverse health effects, mm-hmm. then the pronouncement that you're making in September should take into account the data that's been compiled from June to September. But the announcement that was made in September 
was basically made on the data that was available in June. So it's very clear to me that they just had an agenda that they were going to fit the pieces in to rationalize and justify it. Mm-hmm. That's the scariest thing for me is that this thing's marching forward. Um, and it seems to be plowing, plowing out dissidents um, when it can. And the other thing is we don't actually know who exactly is in control of it, which makes it a lot harder to troubleshoot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's heavy. And how wide do you, how wide a scale do you think this is on? Because it certainly seems like Western countries, not just with this agenda, but with many others, it seems like Western countries and in particular Anglosphere countries and yeah, yeah, I think in particular Anglosphere countries seem to be, they seem to be the ones being targeted by a lot of, a lot of these psyops. And, or do, do you think, what what do you think is going on there? Do you think this is something that's a a global plan to cover all these continents, or do you think this is a specific attack or manipulation on the West? I think both. So okay. w- what I think is going on is, um, if you've read Edward Bernays' book called Propaganda, Edward Bernays is uh, the godfather of uh, PR. He was the one who helped convince Americans to support our entry into World War I, even though most of them thought it was um, Europe's war. Mm-hmm. And guess what? They did it under the guise of protecting democracy, which they've continued to use over and over again when they want you to risk people like People like that one. Right, right, right. Everything's a There's a ton of remixes yeah. of that, right? Threat, protecting threat, 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 democracy. democracy. Yeah, yeah, people love that one. And, and so Bernays wrote about propaganda, and he wrote that, you know, convincing a mass of people to believe something isn't doesn't require that you talk to everyone individually. It just requires that you understand who they uh, hold as opinion leaders. Mm-hmm. And so as long as the opinion leaders within a society can be dwindled down to a couple thousand, and if you can control them, then you can control the messaging. And so, um, you know, if you can, if you control a few Hollywood studios, you know, there's only a few major Hollywood studios, a uh, few major media corporations um, that kind of are responsible for the development of culture. If you can Mm -hmm. infiltrate those, and if you can infiltrate academia, then your message is going to seem far more popular and far more pervasive than what it really is. And so you can convince a society that opinions that are held by 20% of people are actually held by 75% of people. And the majority is going to shut up because they actually think they're the minority based on the images um, that they're exposed to. And so, you know, to think about who could possibly be responsible for this, it's got to be people or countries with a lot of money. Um, if you've seen the uh, the interview with uh, Yuri Bezmenov, former KGB agent, who talked mm-hmm. about Russian uh, subversion tactics, you watch that video that was reported 30 years ago, and you're like, that's, that's China. Like, yeah. you replace Russia with China, and it's like, mm-hmm. that's probably the same thing. And so if you realize that, uh, a lot of countries would benefit from the United States falling and, and losing its position as leader of the global economy. You realize, and, and you also understand the art of war. You understand that mm-hmm. the best way to defeat an enemy is to have the enemy defeat itself. The easiest way to take over the United States isn't to line up a bunch of naval ships on the California coast. It's actually, mm-hmm. let's figure out how to infiltrate the minds of Americans so that their ideology is antithetical to the perpetuation of their empire and they'll just eat themselves alive from the inside. And that's exactly what we're seeing right now. What are your thoughts on TikTok? Well, I have TikTok on my phone. I don't, <laughs> I don't really know how to use it. Um, I, I don't know. Like, I think, t- I think, I think, I think TikTok is a CCP uh, psychological weapon. 
It might be. I don't consume enough of the media for, for okay. me to know how it affects me as a consumer. But let's say it's collecting all my data. What, what is it? What, what's I don't know what that entails. Does that mean like, I don't know. Like, Are you what, aware that the, you know, the Chinese version is different? Uh, I, I don't know how it's different. I know okay. some elements. So in, in China, the algorithm promotes... Um, so, so, so in, in Western countries, the stuff that largely gets pushed into people's feeds is all types of degeneracy and gender mm. and so on. In China, it's engineering projects, science projects, sports achievements, um, patriotism. So it's, so, so in China, TikTok operates differently. Like the whole thing, it's different. It's the same app. And also uh, children, children are, allowed, are not allowed to access it, I think, after 8 p.m. So there's like a, there's a curfew on yeah. it, but the stuff that they're seeing when they're swiping through, it's things that's going to motivate them, inspire them, create love for their country. If you're a boy, it might give you some stuff that's, you know, might lean you a little more masculine. If you're a girl, it might lean you a little more traditional and feminine. Whereas in the West, it's the complete, <laughs> it's the complete opposite. Well, yeah. And, and that is, that sort of mirrors what we saw where China was, I, I believe, banning like girly men from being on yep. TV yep. <laughs> at the same time, they understand how to use social justice ideology against the West. So, yes. you know, they, they pounced on George Floyd. In fact, um, there were, I think hundreds of thousands of Twitter bots that instantly changed from advocating for uh, global or economic lockdowns and shaming leaders for not going far enough. Yeah. Like right when the George Floyd uh, riots started taking off, these bot accounts switch towards Black Lives Matter, um, uh, you know, amplification. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that China or the CCP understands that uh, they want to promote messaging in the West that they would never allow inside their own country. Yes. Right. That should give you cause for concern. That should definitely make you skeptical of the messaging that's being spread in the West, but also the messengers who are spreading the information in the West, because if they were, you know, truly concerned journalists, this would be like a, hmm, that's a red flag. That's yeah. a huge red flag that, that this nation is pushing this ideology that we happen to agree with through the mainstream media mm -hmm. on the inside, but they don't, they don't allow it on their side. Why is mm -hmm. that? Let's talk about why. And of course they don't want to talk about why, because the most plausible conclusions um, probably don't look good for their sponsors. No, it's, it's, it's incredible to me. And I found it so interesting how Western media and Western people in general have, whether in the UK, Canada, USA, uh, you know, it's okay to criticize Russia, right? You can talk about Russia. You can, you can criticize Putin, whatever. I mean, think about the past two and a half years, th the past three years we've lived through. Where did this all start? Exactly. Where exactly. did it all begin? Right. Whether it was a leak or it was unintentional, where did people were more busy? Uh, people were more upset and outraged about someone calling, saying the word China virus, right. saying, using that term, than they were about the fact that, you know, there's been no conversation about how how this all started. And look, really, right. okay, like let's look into the origin of this. Um, we know that it was lied about and it was covered up, whether it was intentionally leaked or not. We know that it was lied about. We know that it was covered up. Um, and, and there's been no conversation, no repercussions. What about the numbers? I mean, didn't they claim that, in, you know, country of over 1.3 billion people, 
I isn't there still isn't there official COVID death count like still like five? What, what's wait? Well, uh, you know what? I'm I'm gonna look it up right now. It's probably the inverse this. of the okay. So in, in ratings, okay, okay. Let's see. So in the USA, wait, wait. Let's say let's let's compare it to the USA. So in the USA, the claim is that there have been 1.04 million deaths from the Rona, okay. one million cumulative deaths. In China, the official count. Keep in mind that this is where it started, and it has quadrupled the population of the USA. Do you know what the official death count is, Alex? Over the past three years, it's like six hundred thousand or something. Alex, five thousand two hundred and twenty-six. Wow. Well, that's exactly the amount of people who opposed the CCP. So that makes sense, right? It's like so, ninety-nine point so, nine. So hang on. So hang on. You want me to believe that one million people in the USA died from this? Over one hundred fifty thousand in the UK with uh, 330 million and 65 million populations relatively. And the country where it started with 1.3 billion people had 5,200 deaths and hasn't had a death. They, they claim they haven't had a death since um, apparently their last log death was, I think, May, May... Oh, no. Okay. Oh, no. Okay. Okay. They had a, a little bump, but apparently they went one year with pretty much none. 5,200 total. That's the official number, right? Do you need to be a, a journalist or a scientist or whatever to go, hang on. Right. That does not, that doesn't, like, if they'd at least said, oh, we've had 50,000, right? Like 5,000, like, no one's asking this question. I'm like, where, where are the journalists? Where are the people who are supposed to be looking into this? Is this one exaggerating the numbers? Is this one playing it down? Someone is telling a massive lie here. Right. And so that tells you a couple of things. Number one, it tells you that journalism is obviously compromised or incapable, yep. but I think compromised is probably Completely more. Um, and then you also think that the, the journalists who haven't been compromised are removed from mainstream platforms when they're just all they are, all they're guilty of is being nine months ahead of the curve on, on everything that they're talking about. Um, but it also sheds light on the insanity of climate change, climate change policies. And I'll tell you why. Uh, I was arguing with my dad about the you know the, the utter futility of you know trying to manage carbon emissions by western countries when the countries in the east are emitting far more carbon mm -hmm. and they have no issue committing fraud about it where carbon emissions are, are something that would be you know uh, uh highly impacted by fraudulent accounting right and so and like well you know my dad my dad the liberal was like well you know you got to hope that when they when they're in charge that they're going to you know have a little bit more reason to be honest about it and it's like who exactly is going to hold them accountable for reporting false numbers the same people who say may hold them accountable for uh creating or at the very least um aiding the spread of a virus right because the global leaders had their chance to hold china accountable for uh massive economic damage um, and potentially fraud, most likely fraud, that's been imposed on uh, on the West, and they haven't done it. And so, what makes you think that they're they're ever going to change their tune if they're not being accountable for what they're doing today? It's wild, man. Yeah, we we live in such a strange time, and it's weird because there's also then the rising censorship as well. 
So when it comes to these conversations and when it comes to these issues, even as we're talking right now, I'm like, oh gosh, is this going to get demonetized? Like, am I allowed to, are we allowed to say this? Are we allowed to say that? And that's another crazy thing is just this chill factor that's been created where people feel like, ooh, you're not really allowed to talk honestly about pande the pandemic. You're not really allowed to talk honestly about the, the jabs. You can't honestly talk about China. You can't honestly talk about gender. Any you, There's all these topics now where in you know, the so-called land of the free and places where we're supposed to have liberty and freedom, and freedom of speech, both online and in person, people are even terrified to broach mm -hmm. some of these subjects. I mean, I'm not even talking about going full tinfoil hat and going super down some conspiracy theory lane. But I mean, like what I just mentioned, I mean, come on, 5,200 deaths in China, 1 million in the USA. Yeah. China has four times the population of the USA. It's where that, that's such a glare. It, it's just so I'm like, wait, how is this not, are people afraid to talk about that? Like, can, can we, can we address this? Like what right. is, what is going on? There's so many unanswered questions, right? What about people who, again, you know, literally, I can't, I can't honestly talk about the jabs on this because right. I know I'll get demonetized or the video will get taken down. And that is insane because there's no other um, medicine or treatment or right. pharmaceutical or whatever that, I, that you can't talk about and you can't discuss side effects and you can't discuss the upsides and the downsides and who needs it. With anything else, you can do this all honestly, but they've created this, they've created this wall, this force field around all certain issues and made the Overton window so extraordinarily tight and been so aggressive and hostile and unfair towards anyone who even dares to question it. And then they have the gall to talk about, oh, we're, you know, pro-science, we're, we're, we're interested in the truth. And it's like, right. you're absolutely not. And, and it's even invaded the medical industry. So I know, yes. you know, last year I had, I may have gotten COVID in 2020, maybe once or twice. I wasn't sure. I never tested positive for it. I had some symptoms a time or two unclear, didn't have antibodies by 2021, but everybody, you know, all our online friends were getting COVID late, like last December. Mm -hmm. And I'm at the time living by myself thinking, well, if I'm knocked out the way these guys are for a week or two, I'm not going to be able to go to a pharmacy to get medicine. I might as well preemptively uh, get the good stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I, I texted one of my doctor friends and, and I was like, Hey, can you send me um, a, a prescription for, I don't know if we're allowed to say the eye drug. Nope, you can't say it. You can't okay. say it. Can you yeah. send me a prescription for the eye drug? Mm. And, um, and he, he was like, yeah, no problem. Like the, you follow this protocol I think it was like the FL something CC. I'm getting the acronym wrong, but yeah, he's yeah. like, yeah, follow this. And so I give him the pharmacy down the road. I give him the information. And I go to pick up the prescription and I show up and they're like, oh, we don't actually have your name in the database. He like, he literally called them. He told, and he gave them all the information and it just got like auto rejected. It's, it's like the equivalent wow. of, of, you know, an AI auto flag on uh, on a social platform. And wow. then, so he wrote it for a different pharmacy. I go to the other pharmacy. The, the uh, pharmacist says, we'll fill this prescription for you, but um, we can't guarantee that the next pharmacist will. And that, that had never happened for any off-label use for any mm -hmm. drug ever before that I'm aware of. Uh, doctors are given the latitude of writing off-label prescriptions, um, but not in this very special uh, circumstance. And so yes. you have to ask, what, what made this one different? 
It's been really nutty, man. And then another giant part of the world, which has not been discussed at all, Africa. Yeah, well, you guys are just superior. I mean, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) So again, the whole continent of Africa, over a billion people, uh, obviously with more poverty, not as good infrastructure and healthcare systems and so on as you have in Europe and Australia and Canada and the USA and the UK. Just breeze through it. Just breeze through the whole thing. Barely had lockdowns. Lots of places never had mask mandates. I think fewer than 5% of the total population of the entire continent took the jabs. Just breeze through the whole thing. And um, it's like, hey, can we, can, we, can we ask some questions here? Like, you know, I have some hypotheses about these. Yes, you have got a younger, you know, median age of the population and so on. But, but that, even that is silly because people forget that it's like, yes, there's a lower average age, but there's still a but ton of old people in Africa, mm-hmm. right? Just because the average, just because the median age is lower doesn't mean that there are not elderly people there. There's millions of elderly people there and they breeze through it too. So well, yeah. if all the stuff you're saying over here is correct and it's like, yeah, it's, um, it's a weird one. And it's strange because I don't know why it should take like, you know, this is not our field. This is not our field. Like we're, we're fitness guys. Like I'm a rapper. Like why, why is it? It's like people who aren't even supposed to be in this realm. We're not, you know, professional scientists or professional journalists or reporters or people trying to get to the bottom of all this, but it's just like normal people who are interested, who are just genuinely curious, who have been the most interesting people to follow over right. the past few years because those are the people who are actually asking questions and seeking the truth while all the journalists are just pushing all the propaganda and just going along with the narrative and just getting people to hate each other and pushing division and none of them are asking these very obvious right questions then the, right. the obvious stuff isn't being addressed i mean if they were able to kind of dance around some of the things that were a little more nuanced and complex but i'm like yo this is these are not complicated questions this is just right i see a gaping hole here i see a huge disparity this is a very obvious thing it's not being talked about hey what's going on right and i talked to my dad about this because my dad's an expert believer and uh an expert truther let's just say and um you know he's saying you know these these uh, virologists or epidemiologists they have years of training to learn how to assess the data how can you think that you know you're assessment can be on par with theirs. And I said, well, it's not, except when I'm certain that they're lying or withholding information from me. I don't need to be an expert in virology or epidemiology mm-hmm. to know that a, a statement that's made with extreme confidence cannot be made yet with the amount of confidence that it's made with because the data simply doesn't exist. Yes. And so, you know, this was, which, this was true with the efficacy of the thing that we can't talk about necessarily mm-hmm. where they're talking about, well, you know, there, you know, there, there aren't long-term risks, this and that's like, they don't know How, that. It's, imp- they, it's impossible to make that statement. They know yeah. that. Exactly. Right. So, so I don't need to know how to assess VAERS data to know <laughs> that you can't possibly make the statement absent the amount of time that's necessary to compile the data to make that statement. Therefore, I know that you're intentionally mm-hmm. misleading me. Yes. If I start a company or I release a product next month, I cannot show you the five-year profits and revenues of the company because it hasn't been around for five years yet. Right. 
not only has it not been around for five years, it hasn't been around for five months. So you can't around. even like, you can't model it out and, and no. you can't model it out for something that's very, very new. No. Right. So the, the one uh, sleight of hand that, you know, they're, they're trying to say is, is that, you know, the MRNA stuff is like the same as a, a measles uh, shot. And it's like, it's no, one is completely different. One is, it may be fine. It may be completely, completely fine. We just don't know enough mm. yet to know that it is fine. And so you know what? Anybody yeah. who's telling you that's like, what's going on there? And do you know another thing that, again, that's been memory hold mm-hmm. is when Trump was in office in the USA, back you go back to 2020, the people making that point were primarily people on the left side of the aisle up to the current president and current vice president who yes. were saying, hey, we don't have enough data on this thing. It's been rushed. We don't have the time. It hasn't fully been tested. And the way that the speed and aggressiveness with which that switched around when the president changed, I mean, that just said, that says so much about the sad state of, of humanity and right. tribalism and people just rooting for a team, right? So there were people who were literally saying that Trump was trying, you know, when he first announced, when he first announced it, and people were talking about how, you know, this is how horror movies begin. And, you know, he's going to, this is how people are going to get killed. And he doesn't care about people. And they're rushing this. And there's not enough data. We need long-term studies and this and that. Within six months, those are the people who were calling for people to be punished, calling people stupid, calling people anti-vaxxers and anti-science for asking questions and for going, wait, hang on. Um I'd like more information about this or, you know what, we don't have this information yet. What about this? What about that? And it was just, no, just shut up and take it. And if you don't, we're going to make your life hell. Yeah. And it, it just shows you that our political class would much rather get credit for solving a problem than solve a problem. Absolutely. Right? And if, if, any of the litany of emergencies that we've been through over the last decade are real. It just shows you how, how careless and, and frivolous our leadership class is to put everybody else at risk. And an example I'll give for that is, you know, when Trump was in office, the left was saying, oh, you know, this guy's, uh, he's going to play nuclear football. He's going to do this. He's going to do that. It's going to be terrible. Um, we're, you know, everything is a grave risk. It's like, okay, maybe it is. Let's look at the Podesta leak. Oh, you guys actually helped elevate this guy, right? You helped elevate this guy because you thought that it would give you a better chance to be in power because you thought he was crazy and you thought everybody else would think he was crazy. Turned out you were wrong about that. Mm. But you literally elevated and pushed to elevate a person who you're now saying is like an extreme threat to democracy and humanity solely to give yourself a better chance of winning. So what does that say about you? What mm. what risks are you willing to sign me up for to secure your place in power? Yeah. There's something you mentioned early, very early on in the podcast, Alex, in the first couple minutes, which um, I wanted to come back to and allow you to go a little bit deeper on, because you were talking about coming from a very atheistic slash agnostic background yeah. and having some changes in your thinking around that and how that affects other things that might be going on in the world right now. So can you talk to that? Yeah. So I just noticed that the people that I was around who 
didn't believe in evolution, who, you know, believed the Bible more literally than I'll ever be able to believe it, um, seemed to have better life outcomes, at least in certain circumstances, than I did over and over and over again. And so what that tells me is that, you know, the university system, the educational system, scientific method is reasonably effective at um, determining truths in isolation at the expense of its ability to understand the big picture and how everything works together. And so my assessment of, of organized religion over time is number one, humans have a void in their mind that requires them to believe in some sort of divine being that's overlooking, uh, overlooking them. I don't think that humans have the capacity to manage the volatility and anxiety that's inherent in life without coupling it with a belief in, in a higher power. Um, and, you, and you look at, you know, mental illness rates between the religious and the atheists. It's like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. The atheists have much higher incidences. Is that, is that something that's been studied? I haven't. Yeah, it is. Now, oh, okay. what the, the counter case to that, like my dad will say is, oh, well, you know, the people who go to school more are more likely to get formally diagnosed. And so those numbers aren't, rep aren't actually representative of true mental illness across society, because I'm sure there's a ton of Christians who are mentally ill and it just hasn't been diagnosed yet. I can't counter that. I just don't think it's true. I don't think it's true to the extent that it's going to make up the entire Delta. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I think that humans need to believe in a higher power. Uh, I also think that um, those who believe in the, you know, what the Bible says, or the lessons behind the Bible or the lessons behind Abrahamic religions tend to be better at creating families, right? Mm -hmm. Because, uh, I don't think that what is taught in the university system about, okay, you know, we must treat all everybody like they are exactly the same. We are all equal. Do not, do not pay attention to any differences. It's like, okay, no, that's just, but also, true. but also pay attention to all the differences. Right, right, way. right. <laughs> yeah. It's like you, yeah. you talk to anybody, talk to anybody who's grown up on a farm and they will immediately disbelieve gender ideology because, yes. you know, they they raise horses and cows and, <laughs> and goats and pigs. And they know that by the time they're three weeks old, they can tell the difference between the boy horses and the girl horses. They can mm -hmm. tell the difference between the cows and the steers. Um, they can they can tell the difference between uh, rams and the ewes. If the, if the ram is a male sheep, I don't know. Yeah, that's um, right. and, and so we know that uh, certain things that are being taught to us by the educational system are just not true. And yeah, you know, people who believe in informal religious ideology might believe things that are uh, demonstratively false or empirically f believed to be false based in academia, but the sum of their parts produces more functionality. It produces uh, greater mental stability, uh, in many cases, higher net worth, greater life satisfaction, greater relationship satisfaction, and so one thing that I chide my dad on is I say, well, liberals are actually just, uh, they're a misery cult. It doesn't matter if you're right or wrong. The mm. people who believe what you believe are more miserable than the are people less who happy. don't. And, that, and that's proven. That, that, that one, right. that's measured. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, spending time across industries like I've spent and just wanting to live the best life that I can live. I sort of realize that it, you know, it doesn't matter if it's true or false. It matters that those who believe it's true live better. Right. Mm. And 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 so guess what? You can't disprove that. You can't disprove that by saying, oh, dude, you really think the earth is six thousand years old? It's like, no, I don't. <laughs> but if I did, I'd probably if I were able to convince myself of that, I'd probably be happier, mm. um, which go goes back to one of my original points about, you know, quote unquote, irrational beliefs and how they, they position you to to succeed in life. 
And then the other element that that you've gotten into, we've gotten, in, I've gotten into, we both came to this conclusion independently. You beat me to it by a couple few years, but <laughs> I still got here, is that when you don't believe in a divine being, and I've seen this with my dad, you believe the government can solve all your problems. You believe the government can change the temperature of the earth. You mm-hmm. believe the government can eradicate a respiratory virus. You believe the government can solve poverty. It's like, no, 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 no. They've proven over and over again they can't do any of these things, Right. So you're legitimately, you're like a gambling addict who keeps putting his money on red and it keeps coming up short and you're still certain that this bet's going to perform. Why? And then you, you, oh, they're a little bit neurotic and they can't handle the reality of this entity that you believe is is your paternal or maternal protector doesn't care about you at all. Mm -hmm. Maybe certain people within it do. But as it operates, it doesn't operate to take care of you. It actually operates to extract as much of as much as it can from you to maintain the the structure of the the entire thing. Yes. Yeah. No, you've made some really interesting points. You know, one thing I would I would certainly add to it just from the sort of pragmatic perspective is that there has to be something at the top. Right. So. Whoever you are, there has to be something at the top of the hierarchy. If you're someone who is traditionally religious, if you're a theist, if you believe in God, you believe that no matter what's going on in the world, in my life, in your life, in the country, whatever, there the ultimate authority is God. Like mm-hmm. God is the supreme being. He's the ultimate authority, more important than any world leader, anyone in politics, any celebrity, myself, yourself, any. God is at the very, very top. By logic, if you remove that, I don't think you can literally remove God, but if from one's own brain and the way they lived, you remove that, there has to be something at the top. Mm -hmm. And in many cases, as you've alluded to, that is now the state or the government, or it can be yourself, right? It can Mm -hmm. can become yourself and your own personal selfish desires and pleasure seeking and so on, which can lead to nihilism if someone is not disciplined. Um, Statism, obviously, is what else it can lead to, statism and totalitarianism. Um, Or, you know, it can can become another, it can become another ideology, you know, it can become, okay, you know, the the woke equity is at the Mm -hmm. top, or it can become uh, reason, you know, logic, science, the science, right? We've seen the science becoming essentially religion for people. Right. right, the science, not not actual science, but the science. Right, the science is now right. the thing at the top. And one of the problems with um a lot of those is well, with, with all of them is that I mean, firstly, when if, if you say someone thinks okay, re- reason and logic should be at the top, and I was having this conversation just recently, and one of the problems with that is it's it's amoral. These things are amoral. Reason, logic, and science they're they're amoral. They're not they're not immoral. Right. They're just there's no morality. So science doesn't tell you the how you should live your life or how right. you should structure things. What's right? What's wrong? It's, it's, it's not. It's just it's just science. Right. It's, it's a tool. It's a very valuable and useful and important tool, but it doesn't give you morals and ethics and right and wrong. In fact, if you're very, very intelligent, if you're a smart person and you're intellectual and you're good with words, you can rationalize really, really awful stuff. Right. Through deductive reasoning and, and logic and science. Like if you just have this very, um, you know, if you just assume this idea, okay, we're, we're simply advanced apes 
on this spinning rock. There's no inherent sanctity of life and value to human beings, particularly and this and that. You can very quickly start to justify, and we see this happening. You can you can start to now justify all sorts of things that are wrong. If you do not believe that life, that human life is inherently sacred and precious, you can now justify, you know, why are people, you know, what's the obsession with abortion that's going on in the West, in the West, right? Mm-hmm. What about people moves towards euthanasia? Like this is, these are, these are natural downstream consequences of this, of this way of thinking, because once you give up the idea that life is sacred and that human beings have anything special. So if, if that's not precious, then yeah, like, well, why can't you, why, why can't right. we justify this? Why can't, if it, it's convenient, it's convenient, it's easy, right? They might have, you know, these sort of pragmatic advantages because nothing is now sacred anymore. And I think on a, on a sort of societal level, that's one of the biggest issues I find with this sort of rejection, you know, this de- desire to sort of completely reject all religious notions or all ideas of God or whatever, because now you've just positioned, as I said, you've positioned yourself, you've positioned science, you've positioned so-called logic um, at the top of your, of your hierarchy, and you've, you've, you've lost the anchor. You've lost the moral anchor that, and, and now, it's just, now it's just a battle of opinions. Now everything's right. just subjective, and you can now go. You can go. You can go as far as redefining man and woman, which is literally again what people are doing. Right. And the as you've alluded to, the people doing that are. I'm not saying all atheists are doing this. Far from it. But all the people doing it are atheists. Right. Well, right? there's no one religious who can't tell you what a man or what a woman is. Right. And I think what happens is when you remove religion from the human mind, their moral compass shifts to. Um, whatever gives them the most status. Mm-hmm. And so an example that I noticed when I was working at the hedge fund that I was working at is, you know, the, the man, the hedge fund manager was a university of Chicago graduate studied under Milton Friedman, all these uh, neoliberal economists. And I was an economics major undergrad too. You know, what they teach you is that um, in a free market, money goes to the producers of goods and services who provide the most value to society. Mm-hmm. And I think that's like broadly generally true, but we obviously know there's there are many exceptions to that general rule, but it's like broadly true. And what happens if you have somebody who's amoral or uh, atheist and you put them in that environment is they'll all of a sudden take that kind of juvenile message or overly simplistic message and say, my worth is exactly, exactly correlated to my net worth. Mm-hmm. And whatever I do to get more money obviously means I'm a better person. Otherwise, how could I have more money if I wasn't a better person? Because in a free market society, the people who get the money are providing more value. And so it's like, it's a rationalization mechanism that gets people acting in ways that they would never act if they had a a stronger moral foundation or if they weren't university graduates, then it defaults to materialism and celebrity worship and thinking like, oh, you know, I I have status because I bought this Louis Vuitton bag and uh, I want this because Kim Kardashian has that. And and I think the commercialization of celebrity worship, uh, it requires the consumer to adopt some degree of hubris in that they must see their fellow man as perfect, right? Mm-hmm. Why would you wait in line for 12 hours to get some Michael Jordan sneakers if you didn't think that Michael Jordan was like God or perfect mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. like that? Like it just, it wouldn't make it's, sense. It's, it's, it's idol worship. 
You know, yes. that's something that the, 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 the Bible is very, very warns very strongly about, which is idol worship. And I think that when people hear that, they think of, you know, the, the literal golden calf and they think of actual statues and bowing down to statues and stuff. And it's like, no, it's actually, it's, it's deeper than that because many things can become an, an idol, right? You right. know, whatever, whatever it is that you start worshiping and you want to, you want to wait in line for 12 hours for a pair of, like you've made, you've made those sneakers or the people who have made them, you, you've, you've made that thing into an idol because just look at your behavior, right? right. Uh, it's not, it's not just what you're saying. It's like, okay, well, how are you actually behaving? Right. If you right. are worshiping mm -hmm. a celebrity or you're worshiping a politician, you're counting on them to be your savior. You're claiming that if this person, if your guy, if your gal does not get elected, this is literally going to be the end of the world. This is an existential threat. That's what people say. I'm like, yo, that is, that's idolatry. You've, right. you've, you've just swapped, you've got the same circuitry, but you, you've just swapped where God was or where God should be. You've just swapped it for this individual who is outside you. And I think that this happens all the time. And I don't think people necessarily know they're doing it because one conclusion I've certainly reached is that human beings are religious creatures. Mm -hmm. Right. We are clearly hardwired, whether someone believes in just raw, pure evolution and no creator or whatever, or you believe in um, a more religious view of how we came into being. Either way, we are clearly programmed and why billions and billions of people around the world are religious. Majority of people in the world believe in God and always have done in different ways. It's clear that we have selected or been programmed or created with that hardwiring. And I think that that, soft, that hardware can be hijacked by a lot of different softwares, right? I think we've got yes. a lot of malware going on. I think there's a lot yeah. of malware that's going in and it's hijacking those religious circuits, right. which is causing a lot of the strange, you know, over the past two and a half years, a lot of people have referred to, you know, COVIDianism and, you know, the COVID, the, the COVID cult and this behavior with the, the masks and this and that. And, you know, even the way people are treating the jabs like like baptism or something, right? Shunning people. This person's a heretic. This person's on what? This person's unclean. You know, we need to separate ourselves. We need to right. separate ourselves from the unbaptized and the uncircumcised. It's like there, there's this sort of like software. There's this there's this thing that's still running. Sorry, hardware even. And it's still running. It's just that it's had a different program put onto it. And you're sort of seeing the, the, the worst aspects, shall we say, mm -hmm. of what one could consider religious zealotry, but being applied to something that's not religious. And, right. you know, double that with the tribalism and people's desire to fit and you know, the politicization of everything, desire to fit into a political tribe. And it's leading to a lot of very... A lot of very strange behavior, a lot of very odd behavior. Well, yeah, and I, I think uh, successful religions uh, are basically what separates humans from animals. It's not math, right? Math mm. is, is a tool that humans have that animals don't have. But I would say the biggest difference between humans and animals and the reasons why we can exist in large-scale societies and they can't is because humans have the ability to forego hedonic pleasure Yes. And forego selfish activities for something greater in the future mm -hmm. where no animals can really do that. And it's so interesting what you said there, because you said something greater in the future. And so this comes back to, you know, C.S. Lewis's concept of the law of nature or, you know, that this that we have this 
compass within us, which even allows a statement like that to be possible, because how could something be, how can we even be striving for something greater in the future if we don't innately know that all of this morality, it's, it's not just subjective, mm -hmm. right? Something can be better than other. We can objectively say, oh, okay, the, the moral culture of where we are now in regards to certain things is better than it was when human beings were, were being en enslaved and so on, right? So we can recognize that there is this progress that can be made. So I think just, just you even saying that is such an interesting idea because as you, as you were alluding to, to other an animals don't think in that regard. Right. Only, only human beings think in that regard. It's not just, we have our, we have our natural instincts and we might have an instinctual urge to do this or to do, to go left or to go right. But then we have something else on top of that, which is suggesting to us, you know, that the, the, you know, that you should go this way, even if this path might be easier, you know, that you should go this way. Yeah. And I'm trying to think uh, where I wanted to go with yeah, that. Sorry, I interrupted. No, you. no, no. It just sparked uh, an interesting thought. Yeah. And I think when you don't believe in an afterlife or you don't believe that uh, there's something greater than your, you know, the, your body's physical manifestation on earth, then you become hyper sensitive to uh, status, right? Mm. So if you don't think that there, that there's anything beyond the life that you live right now, hell yeah, you cut that driver off, you know, get that, get those Jordans, right? You know, if you got it, flaunt it. Like you just, you end up focusing all your effort into running faster in the rat race. And, you know, I think this is definitely a consequence of, um, of capitalism, right? Because capitalism trains companies to, to make their consumers into animals who will just buy all their products. Um, you know, but the, the ultimate implication is when people become hyper fixated over um, minutely shifting their status to a higher level, they will rationalize all sorts of immoral behavior that they wouldn't likely do if they believe that they were part of something greater than their physical manifestation on earth right at this very minute. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, one more time, just to just being conscious of time, I think one, one final point to make on this as well is there is certainly something to the concept of having the belief that there is someone watching over you. And there's someone like both in terms of a comfort and protection aspect, but also in terms of a, of a morality aspect, yeah. right? If, if you don't believe that, if you believe you can just, you can just do things in the dark that people don't know and that's okay because other people don't know and you know the repercussions might not be seen or be revealed um having the the belief that there there is okay i'm being i'm being watched right like right. I, i'm being watched whether, whether or not there's someone else in the room you know there is a higher being who is aware and is taking stock of my actions and my behaviors so even if it might be expedient to do this thing, or I think I can get away with this thing and maybe I can rationalize it myself and hide it from other people. I still feel a resistance. I feel a stronger resistance to do that wrong thing because I'm aware that I can't really, I can't really get away with it. And of yeah. course, you know, there are many people who are critics of religion in general who will say, you know, this is just a, this is just a control mechanism. And this is a way to keep people doing this and doing this. And that. which is also interesting because I mean, obviously, I don't believe that that is, I don't believe that that is true. I believe in God very literally, 
but even so we need control mechanisms we need we need, we need discipline we need we need Correct. boundaries so, you know we're both we're both big fans of of freedom freedom and liberty but not just chaos right. right you you need freedom but you also need guides you need boundaries you need a sense of right and wrong and lines that you should not cross just because you can and and that has to come from somewhere and i don't think it is safe long term or even um effective long term for the only mechanism that that is to be the power of the state and just right. just the laws well, yeah religion functions as a decentralized morality or mostly decentralized morality mm. mostly decentralized police force and because it gets it. people to act in a way that's mostly in adherence with most laws without sticking a cop and quartering them in your house. Mm-hmm. Um, humans know how to operate with a system like that. But when you remove religion from it, the only enforcement mechanism that you can have to potentially stop humans from figuring out how to cheat everyone else with all of their, their effort and might is to have an authoritarian state. Mm -hmm. Right. If you don't have religion, which is decentralized authority, you know, uh, psychically looking over other people, if you want to call it that, Mm -hmm. then you need to have an authoritarian state that is in everybody's phone, is literally looking over. Yeah. 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 To, To make sure that you're not acting in a way that you shouldn't act. Of course, it's going to be a human on the other end of that. So their determination of whether you are acting in accordance with morality and law sort of depends on if you're acting in accordance with their personal preferences. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the future that you're asking for when you reject organized religion. Amen. Alex, man, there's been such an interesting conversation. We've managed to touch on a whole bunch of things, but I wanted, don't want this podcast to go on too long. We'll get you back on in the future. Uh, but before we wrap it up, where can people find you online? Um, come find me, Instagram, Twitter, Alex Feinberg one. I think you can see my tag, uh, here. Maybe if you can, if you can't, Alex Feinberg one DMS are open on both platforms. Probably will be until I hit say double the following that I have right now. Um, where I think it probably gets a little bit crazier as as Zuby could could tell you. (laughs) Um, yeah, but love to chat about everything. You know, we didn't even get into, to chat about fitness that much, but love helping people, um, lose weight the easy way. doesn't have to be that hard if you're smart about it. Um, like Zuby and I know we enjoy every meal that we eat. We like training. It's like, it's a lifestyle. It's not, we're not doing this for short-term goals. We just live this way and it makes us happier. And so happy to chat about that, but also happy to chat about philosophy, politics, anything you want, because this brain has more than one use case. (laughs) Awesome, Alex. Thanks for coming on the show, man. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Zuby. This was awesome. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. 
As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, Information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C O R I E N T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.